and carry the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, claims of the paranormal. No, sir. We take part ourselves. Yep. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. And I'm Carrie Poppy. And I'm Jennings Brown. Nope. Jennings not here yet. That's Carrie pretending to be Jennings. That was a test and you passed. But there was important information in that test. And that's that Jennings Brown is here to join us for a conversation. And you may remember Jennings Brown from Boston. Mm -hmm. He went to the Healing Rooms ministry with us. I'm sure at the time we did this exact same thing. And we're like, is it Healing Rooms Ministries? (laughs) Is it Healing Room Ministries? Whatever it was. I would like to think that my memory has not changed on that. But also, we had him on to talk about a podcast series he had done about Teal Swan. Yeah, back in like, what, 2018? Teal's in the news again. And a lot of people are asking, what are your thoughts on The Deep End, the new documentary on Freeform and Hulu? And uh, so so you get to hear a little bit of our thoughts on The Deep End. And we'll get to talk about his new podcast series, Revelations, which was just in the New York Times as well. Jennings was quoted and they mentioned the podcast because the group at the center of Revelations, this small religious group, appears to sort of have outsized influence on a certain branch of Google, like a certain like business operation. Technical video production wing of Google, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Really interesting. That's the allegation anyway. So yeah. Jennings just, you know, he's got his thumb on the pulse of what's going on. And so it's time for us to check in with him. Yeah. Also, he's our friend. That too. And quick content warning. We're talking about Teal Swan. So suicide will come up, but not not really in a big way in this conversation. But especially with the other group, there's a lot of discussion of sexual coercion and abuse. So uh, just be forewarned. Yep. Well, welcome back to the show, Jennings Brown. Hey, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, third time, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we had the we had the Teal Swan episode, and then we had the, the live in Boston. I got yeah. to do that. They prayed over me. The healing, what was that? <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the, the healing Healing room. Ministries. How, yeah, yeah, how's your hand? Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, it started itching a few oh. months ago, but then it, it went away. Okay. Oh. I, think it's, I think it's a seasonal thing. I don't know, certain activities. I don't know. Someone somewhere must have prayed just the right yeah. season. Anyways, we're point. glad to have you back. You're part of the family. Oh, shucks. Thanks. Yeah, you're probably one of our most common guests now. Have we had anyone wow. on three times, Ross? I want to say yes, but I yeah, struggle I to say think yes who too, that would be. Yeah, I want to say yes too, but I don't know who it is. Yeah, Drew? <laughs> sure. <Cara? Yeah. laughs> so you mentioned that we had you here before because you had produced this amazing series called The Gateway about Teal Swan, who we reported on. We attended one of her workshops in Los Angeles, and she's in the news again with a Hulu documentary called The Deep End, which has Jennings Brown listed as a development executive producer. So we'll want to talk to you about that. But also, you've been busy. You have another great series on Spotify called Revelations. Yeah, yeah. Ross and I have the same problem, which is we were both (laughs) evangelicals. So we hear Revelations and we go, no, no, it's Revelation. Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) There's there's no S. This is a common error. It's like a religious reflex that makes it hard for me to say the word Revelations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There was actually, I I had some inner debate about whether or not to include the S. Oh, really? Did you get anybody writing you who hadn't? listened and didn't understand that you were talking about a different religious thread that had multiple I, revelations. I think a lot of people assume it, it's more of a, like a Christian evangelical thing because
because of that name. Right. But no, I've not <laughs> had anybody concerned. I mean, it's a play on the fact that Robert Burton, the leader, has had many revelations. There are many revelations in the podcast. It seemed like a nice vessel for whatever story comes in the next season. So. Yeah, but without any reliance on the book of Revelation from right. the Bible. Uh, but with apocalyptic imagery and end times predictions. So let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Revelations is a six-episode series about a group called the Fellowship of Friends, which, first of all, like, get better SEO, guys. Oh, that's so hard to even remember. Yeah. yeah. Listen, if you're listening to this and you're going to start a cult, call it like Bofunk Kitchen. I can Google that. It's going to be no problem. Nothing else is going to come up. But people keep doing, like, the Friends. The community. The society. <laughs> to be fair, it was started in uh, 1970 when this was less of a concern. And um, yeah, there's a lot of They didn't a lot of anticipate Google. Friends. <laughs> right. That's fair. fair enough. But pivot then. Like, give it a nickname <laughs> or a hashtag. Well, anyway. Um, so how did you find out about it? So I, I first heard about it when uh, I was actually at Teal's Retreat Center, the Philia Center. And her then husband, I think it was her fourth husband, mentioned. You know, I met him there, and he's he's spoken about how he was in this what he called this like dangerous cult years before. Like that's how he got into spirituality, and I guess that's what sort of made him sort of an expert on cults. And he said, you know, I think he would say Teal isn't a cult, but she's well equipped to help people who are in cults like me. Hmm. And but the way he described it, I mean, it was this. Their headquarters was in California, and you know they make. They have a vineyard, they make wine, they collect Renaissance arts. It, it really, it seemed like this this hidden Shangri-La. I mean, it seemed stranger <laughs> than fiction. And so I was very curious. I mean, because especially, I mean, I, I hadn't heard about it before. And so I went out there. I wanted to see it. And I also, I got kind of a, a heads up slightly before that they had a doomsday coming up. Because wow. uh, the leader gets predictions from the angels. There are 44 angels that oversee them, and it's... Shakespeare, Rembrandt, Bach, Lincoln, Walt Whitman, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a it's a fun William Blake. kind of William Blake. Yeah, so uh, luminaries, household yeah, names. Yeah, it's, it's it's most like yeah, it's like kind of Western luminaries. Who's one, the most obscure one, one you heard about? Oh yeah, is one, there a woman yeah, like Hypatia? there's one woman, Queen Elizabeth I. Oh. Okay. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, the Virgin Queen. I don't know why Queen Elizabeth was allowed. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the one I, I woman. People, okay. people have theories. You know, they, people say, "Well, she was. I, she was known to have kind of masculine energy." I don't know. I'm not sure. But yeah, there's one woman. <laughs> hey, we've had 46 now U.S. presidents. Not a single one has been a woman. So there you go. You know, this is progress. Yeah, they, the angels are a little more progressive. That's true. <laughs> Just to clarify, so you found out about this group from Teal yes. Swan's fourth husband, who told you Teal Swan's group is not a cult. I know cults. It's this thing. Yeah. And you went there. So the, the gateway was sort of a gateway to this this group. It lived <laughs> up you. to its thank name. You, thank you. Yeah. So I, I, I wanted to check it out. I found out they had a doomsday because like I said, the leader gets messages from the 44 angels. He's the only one that can speak to them. So they had a doomsday coming up. I was like, how, as a, as a journalist who reports on these sort of fringe groups and religious movements and spiritual leaders, how often am I going to be able to get a chance to kind of observe a doomsday group as they prepare for a catastrophic event? Yeah. How often um, do three friends get to sit in a room and talk about this and have the same experience? We've also <laughs> been to a doomsday. <laughs> Yeah. It's wild because it should be really eventful and nothing happens. Oh, Ross, right. you're looking confused. Yeah. What was our doomsday? Oh, remember the <laughs> remember the group in uh, Vacaville that... Uh, oh, yeah. The man-child is being born in the stars. Yeah. yeah well, I know I, you, you also got 
pretty close to Harold Camping. Yes. When he was making his oh, you're predictions. Right. I've got two doomsdays. No big I didn't deal. Know that. But yeah, we went to this one group that was, you know, they're kind of cagey about like, is the world ending or is the world shifting? They leave a little bit of right, room for some right. other interpretation. But yeah, so you had a similar experience where <laughs> the world didn't end. <laughs> right. And and it's sort of shifted over time. I mean, Robert, mm-hmm. the leader's name is Robert Earl Burton. He's made many predictions before. They've been around for 50 years. This time, it's like it's a little more vague. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. members take it different ways now. It's been it's not their first rodeo. That was interesting to see that as you talked with, say, long timers who had gone through these boom and bust cycles of stowing soup and you know things that they'll yeah. need to eat, provisions, rations, selling their stuff, gaining credit card debt. They had kind of learned to take that with a grain of salt uh, or go away. And then newer members were maybe more excited about like, oh, I get to be here for the the end. Yeah, it's your first doomsday. I mean, it was yeah, I, there was this ex- there's this excitement. <laughs> Everyone remembers their first doomsday. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I had because I, I spent like three years uh, going and visiting them, you know, a couple weeks at a time. And so I got pretty close with some of the members, not to jump ahead too much. But yeah, I had some interesting, like there's one conversation like the night or two before the event was supposed to happen where I had an older member and a younger member and I was over for, they had me over for wine and, and they were kind of debating. And the older member was like, oh, that's just Robert doing his thing. And the younger member genuinely seemed excited about it and prepared. And, and it was it was weird seeing that kind of clash of the two people having different views on it. That's interesting that anybody would stay and still feel like, no, of course there's not going to be a doomsday. That's just that's yeah. just Bobby. I'm just here for the wine. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting to me. So that person's getting something entirely different out of the experience. Yeah, I think the older members now who they, you know, they think it's it's Robert's teachings, it's the tools they've learned that has enriched their life and I think they think this is just one of the sort of exercises now. And and yeah. cuz it's their their belief is that you know, in order to, I mean, uh, it's it's very expansive and it's constantly evolving, but yeah. I think it's that um, largely that they, in order to achieve enlightenment, to become an enlightened being, a conscious being, you need to be fully present, you know, which is like a radical form of mindfulness, you know, and, and Robert has become fully present over time. So they're getting these tools. And a part of that is like the fine wine and the, uh, the Renaissance art they get, because when you are looking at beautiful art, you are more present. So it's like, mm. that's one of the many tools. Ah. And so... People believe that I think the the sort of people who are a little more interpretive about Robert's predictions say that it's a way to be we are fully present in the moment. And to be fair, like, I mean, all these people came from, you know, they have centers all over the world. So there are all these people gathered. There was this excitement. There was like they had a big dinner that night. And it kind of felt like New Year's Eve. And everybody, you know, I, I was staying with my Airbnb host remembers because every Airbnb out there is run by members for the most part. Hmm. And so we kind of stayed up late and when drank wine, it was very exciting. Like, what's going to happen? And I felt, I mean, I, I felt fully present in that evening. Oh, um, you know, like okay. I wasn't fulfilling the mission of the of the religion. Yeah. yeah. So I I think there's maybe something to that. It's, it's interesting, though, because I, as a lover of art and a decent liker of wine, I feel like those are inherently things that take me out of reality. Like that's kind of their purpose. <laughs> like certainly the wine. Yeah, the wine, but art, too. Like I think of like when I go to the movies, there's always a little Okay, maybe I'm just a freak, but there's always a little voice in the back of my head that's like, well, this is a little sad. Real life wasn't good enough for us, and we had to, like, recreate stories 
<laughs> and like spend millions of dollars on them and put them on a screen. And now I'm watching fake people walk and do things because real life is not good enough. Maybe I just have clinical depression. <laughs> I think I think that's because it's, it's based on the fourth way, which is Gurdjieff and Aspinsky were these Russian philosopher mystics who kind of came up with this idea. And yeah. they were very much like civilization is decaying. And I, I mean, I, I'm not super knowledgeable about I mean, it's their books are very uh, heady and, and esoteric. Yeah, and, and like I, I tried to read some, but or I did read some, but it, it, it like I didn't fully process like their whole whatever. Not but um, yeah, it's like I'm not, I wasn't president. <laughs> Should have been drinking uh, wine. Yeah, but yeah, they, they, they. It's it's similar to that. It's like the the, the outside world is very depressing and decaying, and I, mm. I think that you know, my my favorite Gurdjieff anecdote is that P. L. Travers, who wrote Mary Poppins, was a big follower of his. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, there were some interesting ones. And then it became, you know, it was the basis for a lot of kind of cults and, and new religious movements in the 60s and So 70s. tell us, in the prophecies of Robert Burton, what is the end of the world? What does that look like? Uh, well, it's there have been different ones over time. The first one was, I think it was it was going to be like a economic, and then there's been, like, there's a big earthquake. But this one, it's he's had different ones, and like this one was sort of this combination of a lot of them there's going to be the big one like the earthquake that california is going to fall into the ocean Uh they are going to become beachfront property (laughs) because of where they're placed because they're they're pretty high up in i mean they're northern california this is like lex luther in uh superman (laughs) that's hilarious yeah yeah they have this big beautiful compound right there so they're going to be kind of protected on one side from that and then after that there's going to be a huge economic collapse because you know large chunk of america just split off yeah civil unrest and then that will trigger a nuclear war and again, because of where they're placed, they will survive for whatever reason. And then they will repopulate the world in kind of this new world order in Robert's vision, where they believe that their compound is an ark. And they've been gathering the best of the world. And what they see, it, it's what Robert sees as like the best of the world, which is art and literature based on the, the 44 angels and other conscious beings. So they've been collecting that in the ark. And then when they build the new world, it'll be kind of this more perfect, enlightened world. This is a metaphorical arc. They haven't been engaged in shipbuilding, and it's not waterproof, right? Correct. Okay. Their only ship is a friend's ship. Wow. (laughs) Very good. Just clarifying, because I've been encountering a lot of arcs lately. Mm -hmm. so. So you mentioned their location, and they are in Oregon House, California, which is... A tiny place I had never heard of. And I used to live up there. This is like, yeah. this is a community of like 1,200 or so people. And much like the place where I grew up, it is a census designated place. It's not a town, <laughs> it's not a city. Right. It's like the least category you could have of like, people yeah. are here. And <laughs> their headquarters is called Mount Apollo, right? Yeah, it's, um, well, it's it's Apollo uh, is the, yeah, the, the compound is called that. It's been called different names, but now it's called Apollo. But uh, yeah, it's, there is a mountain on it in the middle oh, of it okay. called Mount Apollo. And that's where the vineyard is. And it's this, it, it's, it's beautiful, especially, I mean, now the vineyard's kind of, they, they no longer maintain it, but the vines are still there. But it's this kind of terraced vineyard that they, they carve these terraces out of this mountain. And it, at one point it was like the, or when it was functioning, it was the largest mountain vineyard in, in wow. America. Oh, and wow. Okay. So just to clarify, you got to experience the end of the world live at the Apollo. Wow, yes. Just just putting that out there. This is what the next hour of this is going to be like. (laughs) 
It's great. So as we mentioned here, it's very rare that you get people who have been present for an end time prediction because there are a few end time prediction groups and B time is linear and you know, you only catch that moment infrequently. How seriously do you think Robert took all of this? His own prediction. Did he show any sign? Because you were there, right? You got to see him. Did he show any sign of like, gee, I hope it happens the way I predicted? You know, I think he does believe that he gets messages from the angels. I think he believes these predictions. And I I heard in the, the first one, he was like for a week or so, he was just very, very distraught. Oh, okay. Um, like he was in, he was at the, they have their own kind of restaurant. He was there and he was just like sulking in the corner. Somebody told me that. I, I, I don't know if, if that's accurate or what, but, um, but it seemed like it really got to him the first time. Mm. And of course, first time he said, um, something like, oh, the, the angels deceived me in order to teach me humility. Ah. And now I'm, I'm a more humble, greater teacher. I've heard that um, one before from <laughs> Harold yeah. camping, camping and others. Yeah. And I think with this one, it was something like, well, they were preparing us for the real one. This was a trial run. Mm. Um, you know, we always, it's but a I think, Jim yeah, so I, yeah. Yeah. I think he really gets these messages. And then when they don't happen, he kind of finds some reason for why it could have been wrong. But also, I, you know, I had people were sending me recordings. They have these, these meetings. Uh, where he teaches and it costs everybody has to pay to be there and you have to attend a certain amount so that's like an extra part of the cost in addition to the tithing mm. but then their members can also watch it online there's a members only website that you can log into yeah. so people sent me some of those meetings leading up to it so i could kind of see his messaging and it seemed like he was sort of hedging a little getting closer to it i think he was kind of getting nervous and okay Okay. And it was less definitive that this this event would happen yeah. as, you know, like California falling into the ocean, all that. It was yeah. more like a, a big, exciting thing. Well, because it, he had been burned before. What number prediction was this? I think this was fourth or fifth. Yeah. Okay. I'd be yeah. hedging too. You yeah. know, this seems to be another recurring thing. Like with the original Millerites, there was the original prediction. I think it was like 1843. Jesus didn't show up. So, oh, you know, we got it wrong by one year. He's going to be here in 1844. Same thing with the Jehovah's Witnesses. There was, you know, all of these predictions kind of culminating up to 1918. That was the big one. Then it didn't happen. One thing I really liked was that you kept drawing parallels to a famous study in the space of failed predictions that's best known by the book When Prophecy Fails about uh, Dorothy. Oh, goodness. Uh, uh, oh, I don't yes. remember the too. group either. Leon Festinger, is that his name? They called her Mrs. Keach in the book, which threw me off because I know somebody. Dorothy yeah. Martin, that's the name. Yeah, this was Leon Festinger and uh, kind of the, the early study that introduced us to cognitive dissonance or at least his work did. And this was a really good example point. Anyways, she was a woman in Chicago who had predicted the end and there was a sort of a UFO-related group. So can you talk a bit just sort of about what you saw in that story from the 50s, I believe, and how it connected with Revelations? Yeah, you know, I I brought the book, you know, for research for the week of the Doomsday. And it was, yeah, interesting reading that as I was seeing the members sort of prepare for it and then sort of rationalize it afterwards. But yeah, it, it was uh, the that group, Leon Fessinger's team, like kind of infiltrated this cult and uh, around Doomsday. And yeah, he found when it didn't happen, mm-hmm. it was psychologically easier to accept when they when when the leader kind of gives you this other 
rationale for why it didn't happen, it's easier to take that rather than to accept that you were totally duped and caught your right. family and lost all your money. Like at first the UFO didn't show up and but we saw an angel, a guy who disappeared. Yeah. That was a sign. And right. And then the massive flooding did not destroy Chicago and the outlying regions. But yeah, but, but it's easier to hear that you uh, yeah, that I think with, with, with that, they said, oh, we, we were so devoted that <laughs> we prevented it. Yeah. You're, you're welcome. Yeah. It seems like the the big takeaway there was that, and you, you mentioned this in the series, the adherents don't become, well, maybe some become disillusioned, but many of them will become emboldened and become more evangelistic about the idea. Yeah, those yeah. are kind and of your I think options. It, yeah, and and he's done it so many times, like, like I said, four or five, that it's kind of weeded out the non-believers, and it, it seems like the people who are there are like truly, deeply dedicated and you i feel like you don't have this often as far it's like a, a new a, a smaller group like this i mean there's like uh i mean i've heard like 1200 and 1500 but you know it's it's fairly small and um yeah that you have like over 50 years that this group's been building of just kind of this dedicated core and you've you, over each prediction is kind of weeded out the you know non-believers yeah except for that one guy who didn't think that it was the, yeah that they, was really gonna happen yeah yeah like that's really interesting to me because usually yeah it's such it's such a divisive moment and it forces people into extremes either you say oh wow this is all nonsense or I'm yeah I even more believe in my guy but somehow he yeah. hung, he hung on to at least one person who was like oh yeah he regularly does bad end times prophecies but I'm still just here for the wine yeah. that's so wild <laughs> well, there's another, I mean, I have other kind of theories with that. I mean, there are members who were very wealthy and he mm. was, he was very wealthy, inherited a lot of money, I think, mm. from his, his family. There were a lot of people who inherited money. And I think they, it seemed like, I mean, this was, this is speculation, but it seemed like people who had more money were less likely to be sexually preyed on. Okay. And, you know, they, it was sort of like this country club for them. Yeah. And they, I mean, this is kind of like what you hear with like Scientologists with the actors, you know, they get a totally different mm, treatment. Right. Because they're, mm -hmm, they're, mm -hmm. they have their uh, social clout and their money yeah. and they enjoy it. So I think like, he's like, I enjoy being a part of this world. He was kind of a more of a top tier member. Mm, okay. He gets to enjoy he this curated experience. Yeah, so he's like, well, you know, I he likes the tools, he likes that, but he kind of dismisses because he's like also of the outside world. He runs a, mm. he, I mean, he's now he died in a plane crash. And, so he's uh, not but, Sea Org. He's oh. just a citizen member. Yeah. So I think yeah, he again he he ran the Jamaica and this hotel, and he runs a business. So I think he's used to being in the outside world and having to explain mm. it. He doesn't really have like where a lot of people like they are in that community and they can't really afford to go out of it and maybe you're more exploited. Okay, yeah, that, um, that makes sense. I, and I, so I was, wonder too then if I mean you're saying it. There's a class thing there where if you don't have much upward mobility, then the end of the world represents potentially some sort of upward mobility. You're like, okay, yes, I have no money, I have no means, but the world is about to be restructured. And right. when that happens, I have like a different avenue for living this entire life that has nothing to do with money. So that's going to be, you know, that is upward mobility right. for me. Whereas mm. the the mm -hmm. rich guy is just like, if things stay as they are, I'm fine. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's and we had that sort of conversation that's in the in the, the one of the episodes where he's mm -hmm. like talking about you know, well, everybody's everybody's all doom and gloom. The world's ending. You know, with climate change and all this, and and I I think the the data is wrong. And he very much he just 
Wow. He was also kind of living oh, in this other world because it's okay. like, yeah, yeah. So you briefly mentioned the lead that we've been burying, and yeah. that's that Robert Burton also has accusations, which I think that you handily back up in your series, Revelations, available on Spotify, uh, that... <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful moment for a Carrie, blog. Carrie loves my moment of product placement. <laughs> that he, for years, for decades, has been grooming young, specifically heterosexual men, for him to have sex with. And that this group largely exists in order for him to have spiritual acolytes for him to groom. Is that fair? I, I think that's that's fair. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I like I said, my initially I was interested in kind of the doomsday side of it yeah. and just a, this kind of outlandish cult of refinement. But I was there for the doomsday and the world didn't end. But I did start hearing from, you know, some ex-members and stuff about these, these sex rituals. Mm. And that's, you know, I was like, okay, maybe there's much more to this story. And I, I there had been a case in the 90s where Robert was sued for allegedly sexually assaulting a minor. And so there was some attention back then, but what these men were saying, the, the, the ex-members were saying, you know, they were they were talking about like this just horrific scale of these sex rituals with like dozens where he tried to have sex with like dozens of men. Yeah, he was aiming for a hundred in one day. I mean, yeah, that's what I found out later. But, you know, the, the first rumor I heard, I was, somebody was like, oh, well, you know, on his 60th birthday, they gave him 60 boys. And that's how they, I mean, they're, they're <laughs> mostly young like they're, you know, he tried, I think, as close to 18 as possible, but they they call them boys. Mm. But this, yeah, this guy was like, yeah, they had 60 boys for his 60th birthday. And I thought, surely that's not the scale here. I thought right. maybe it would kind of turn into this sort of myth mm. over time mm-hmm. in the kind of rumor mill. But there was enough smoke to make me think there is maybe some sort of fire behind yeah. the scenes going on. So I, I started focusing more on that. And yeah, eventually, yes, yeah, I, I interviewed men who participated in these sex ritual love they were called love fests where mm-hmm. allegedly robert would try to have sex with 100 men in one day and then usually get to like they told me you'd like 70 or so before then he he'd peter out to, yeah but yeah these are all straight i mean as far as i i was told like they everybody reiterated that they were these were straight men robert was especially in the early days very homophobic only allowed mm-hmm. like he would tell people who were in in gay relationships that that's cosmically wrong and I had one, yeah, one person I interviewed, she came in with, with her girlfriend and Robert told them they had to break up. It was cosmically wrong. Uh. So she then started dating a man and then Robert started sexually pursuing that man. Oh gosh. Mm. Um, yeah. Jeez. So, so it seems like it was a lot of young straight men, especially in the seventies. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of like young seekers mm. and he would pick people for his inner circle and then it seemed like, you know, kind of groom them. And after a while... You know, when they really, really believed like he was this sort of godlike creature and could determine if they went to heaven or hell, he would get them alone and reveal to them that he's actually a, a goddess in a man's body and they can't deny the goddess. So they would have to submit to him sexually. Yeah. There was one case in the, in, like I mentioned earlier, in the 90s where a man was, he was working, he was a member, he was working as a security guard for Robert's home. He has this kind of mansion they build him with all the art. And Robert allegedly sexually assaulted him. Not in the the whole grooming as it usually works. I mean, it seemed like it was more forced. And he, the man went and asked around to see if other people had had this experience. And it, others did, including his own son. Um, he found that his son, uh, apparently his, uh, Robert started sexually pursuing him and exploiting him when he was 17. Mm. Wow. So that was a very wow. clear case. They, they sued and settled. 
And then I think after that, the fellowship, I think they, they changed it. So it was a stricter rule around you had to be 18 to be a member. <laughs> and I think they sort of thought, well, as long as it's not a minor, it's, it's they fine. They did that little pivot, but managed to maintain yeah. the operation. Right. Because, I mean, this was this was the 90s and there was sort of you know, a different awareness around power dynamics and, and yeah. sexual abuse and sure. grooming and stuff. And these were men who were straight in a growing up or spending a lot of time in a very, I think, homophobic yeah. group where, right. you know, it says that. So it's like uh, that sort of stigma was even about, you know, male on male sexual abuse. Um, so it was even more stigmatized. So it was really hard for them to speak out. And you know, it took me several like, you know, three years in total working on this and trying to speak to enough men that. You know, they said at first, you know, they were very confused because yeah. they didn't think it was rape because they didn't, there was no gun to their head. Right. And now they realize because there was this great power imbalance where he was their landlord, their boss, their spiritual father, and then they, they believed he could affect their own mortality, that they were like, it was like this ultimate gun to my head. And they finally have like a psychological vocabulary because of a lot of Nexium and, and Larry Nassar and all these cases oh, to understand right. that kind of power imbalance. And they finally, and they're, they're able to, to tell me about it. But yeah, so I, I was able to kind of track. I mean, in the early days, it was sort of it was sort of hidden, and everybody thought Robert was celibate. And then the case came out in the '90s, and it was known like, okay, well, he has sex with his students, but like, there's nothing wrong with that because we're going to mm. build a new society with totally different norms that only seemed to apply to him at the time. And then people were more open, like, oh yes, I I had this kind of holy sex experience with Robert, and it was great. But it was harder for them to get American members, I think, because the, the news was getting out a little in the 90s and early 2000s. Got to start importing. So they started, yeah, building. I'm not saying this was the reason, but they'd already started kind of growing out and building centers in other countries. And they were they would bring in these young men from Russia, Romania, Latin America, uh, more rural areas. So whereas in the beginning, it was mostly like this group that it catered to like more refined elites. I mean, there were a lot of artists and doctors and lawyers. And PhDs, in the 2000s, yeah. they started, yeah, they started getting more young Russian men from rural areas. And I mean, I spoke to some who told me, yeah, they, they were chosen, they believed because they were seen as Robert's type. Mm. And they were given religious visas to move to California and work for Robert and they would like travel with him and they didn't realize all that entailed until kind of Robert got them alone and coerced them into sex or exploited yeah. them. And so that's where it sort of evolved into something that, you know, it's closer to trafficking where these these men didn't really know what they're getting into and the fellowship helped them navigate the the immigration system and w with the embassy and, and getting visas and all that. Yeah, that's how he was able to really have this. At certain points, he had up to 100 men that he had exploited that would participate in these sex rituals. We're talking about roughly a hundred people or more. So I'm sure you're gonna get a wide variety yeah. of reactions. For all I know, I mean that that one case where the man says that he was forced, uh, mm -hmm. I think in the the lawsuit it says that Robert Lake sort of pinned him down and gave yeah, yeah. him okay. began performing fellatio. Who knows if that because I think a lot of men didn't want to tell the full story at mm -hmm. different times. Because mm -hmm. it was like, you know, that if you could be groomed into, you know, there was this stigma of like, if you could be groomed into it, how much convincing did it take, you know, that kind yeah. of. So I don't, it's men, I, that's what I learned, like men talking about sexual assault, it's very, yeah, it's like they, and a lot of these men, it was like they were telling for the first time and kind of processing in real time. And, and they'd be like, well, this is, this is like therapy. I'm like, no, no, you should get 
therapy. I'm, well, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't offer that. Yeah. And an interesting thread in all of this is that you were also a little bit evaluated, it felt. For those of you just listening, you may not be able to tell Jennings is an attractive man. Uh, and it seemed <laughs> like there were people around Robert who were kind of looking at you and thinking, oh, he might be into Jennings. Uh, yeah, that there were ex-members that, yeah, they were like, you're, you're his type. You, you know, beware yeah. going into it. And at first I, I was like, well, this is, I'm not going to include this because, uh, yeah, that's weird for me to, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but it, it did then once I, I, I heard that this was in, this was a rumor, but it was like an, an ex member who is still connected to kind of current members said that the other, there were current members who were sort of like this group of older Russian women who have, who are still in it, but like kind of mentally checked out of the group. Uh, they said they were kind of worried about this young outsider coming in and what Robert might do. You were offered wine and membership. Like they wanted you to even become part of the group to talk to Robert more. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, I was invited to join multiple times and people, you know, and I, I kept showing up and I was genuinely interested in, I mean, like I'm a theater nerd who mm-hmm. likes wine and and Rococo. <laughs> yes. So I, I I was a little enchanted by. I mean the compound is beautiful. It's all these hundreds of palm trees that Robert hand selected and brought them out to deep in the wilderness. So just when you arrive, it feels like you've just tra- been transported to somewhere else. You go through mm. the gate and there's all these palm trees and there's these statues and this is like deep in the foothills of of California where it's like all pine trees and so you go there and it's a different world and there's a statue and art and they have this giant amphitheater and i watch them perform shakespeare under the stars and you know you're drinking wine and 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 everybody's well dressed and i i dress the part and you kind of you're like in this other world where you're not even thinking about anything going on outside of it and you know there's i felt love bombing i mean they all seem very interested in, in me and you know very delighted at any joke i made and i just yeah i felt i was kind of brought in so it was it was enticing and then um yeah i was at this one dinner is sort of this sort of like champagne toast next to Robert's he has this mansion and this these this beautiful garden outside of it that's kind of shaped after Versailles hmm. and uh, we're next to this fountain and the sun setting we're preparing to go to the, the play Midsummer Night's Dream and Robert arrived at this sort of setting and he had this small entourage of men and the whole energy just shifted I mean you feel every time he entered anywhere I was I was near you felt this kind of energetic pool. I mean, charisma and also just like everybody, you know, sort of All worships this man or idolizes yeah. him. So you feel that. And then he sat down not far from me and that it was just kind of exciting. And then <laughs> this yeah. man sitting next to him came over to me and it was very eerie. And he kind of, he held up this phone with this black and white picture on it. And he said, you look just like me when I was younger. And I, I didn't see the resemblance, but he asked if I, he could take my picture. Huh. So he took this picture and then he immediately walked back over to Robert. And uh, I had this sort of escort that was sort of showing me around, uh, making sure I didn't wander too far off the, the beaten path. Yeah. And he told me, he was like, that was Robert's admiral. I didn't know what to make of that. Like, I didn't know if he was sort of doing... Uh, well, he said, yeah, he was his admiral, he's doing recon for Robert. And I don't mm-hmm. know if that meant he was like... curious, Like, who is this man I, I haven't met? Like, what is he doing near my home? Or if he was interested in this younger who we thought was a younger member uh, i'm not sure what to make of that but okay. yeah it all kind of I, I sort of started to feel this kind of multiple people told me like yeah you you look like one of us you're robert's type wow um <laughs> yeah I wish we had that photo. I wish we could just see you, you know, grimacing at the camera would, with the thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. It was, it was, <laughs> I I yeah. guess I guess I look like you. 
Um, okay, this is a totally random question, but uh, did they have red and white wine, or are we just talking red wine? Good question. Uh, red and white. Oh, both. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. As a person with migraine, I'm, I feel invited in now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're good. <laughs> red and white. I mean, you can... I look. I don't. I, I don't know if I want to plug it, but it's it's available online. And it's a, it's <laughs> award winning. One of their big funding sources, right? Is this successful winery? Uh, well, I don't know if it was ever financially successful. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I thought that at first. I was like, that's how they're making their money. No, I think at one point Robert wanted that. It was it was a, definitely a draw. I had a lot of people from they they joined in other centers and you know they were like building this community where they had this wine and you know and kind of living off the land and and so a lot of people went out there to to check this out and it became very large because it was this group effort and like the sacred wine they were making and they had during harvest season like basically as many people as, as could make it out would come and they had incredible slave labor it seems or very cheap labor mm. um, but i think yeah. for the most part it seems like they were people would, would do work at the, the vineyard for free speaking of wages you were saying that people who are sort of part of the religious instruction they would be doing work but getting paid what was it like 40 dollars a week something paltry i forget what it is at now but yeah in the early days it was it just seemed like enough to get by and live in a tent and the the events themselves were very expensive so that yeah it, yeah or you could you could work a certain amount of hours to get into the meetings i mean it was kind of yeah they oh they wow sorta... to even get into the meetings well if you couldn't afford the meetings you could just like work for it and like join robert's i see you know work in, in robert's home kind of like washing the dishes after the expensive meal you couldn't pay for kind of thing yeah so i guess the takeaway here is that robert is still kind of living his best life has there been any impact from your show what have you heard since putting out the six acts of revelations available on spotify <laughs> i mean to be honest, I sort of had to check out. I mean, it was three years in that world. Yeah. Uh, I had to sort of totally tune it out. And I, I was I was getting flooded with with tips. And like a lot of children of members were reaching out because they mm. had a totally different experience being raised in that world. But I, yeah, so I checked out for a bit and I'm not, and I'm, I'm just starting to dive back into these tips because I don't want to leave people hanging for too long. Mm -hmm. And that being said, if anybody listening wants to share more, you know, you know anything, I mean, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at T Jennings Brown uh, or email me Jennings Brown at protonmail.com. But I've been getting a lot of tips. Like there's so much more stuff that I wasn't even aware of. Um, Anyway, but to answer your question, um, I I don't I don't know. I, I haven't heard of any. Well, that's I, I, I realize that there are things I can't really talk about. Okay. Sure. But the feds Legal. haven't come crashing in on the comment. No, no. I mean, there. yeah, I think there might be lawsuits and stuff that I just, I, I don't know. I've just heard rumblings of, of things that I, I really just I can't even speak to. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not like legally silenced on that. But uh, yeah, no, I, I have not heard of any. I mean, I do go into this in, in the podcast that it seemed like ICE, I mean, I, I know that, yeah, ICE was like Homeland Security was was monitoring them for like seven years and raided them twice. Right. Yeah, so they are on their radar, but I haven't heard of any any uh, new action since the podcast came out. Well, I'm curious for you, Jennings. I find that in, in reactions to coverage, like we often look for this very satisfying, like, and the group was dismantled or whatever. And I've come to think that that's kind of misguided, that instead we should see ourselves as like inoculators. You know, we're now if someone looks up Fellowship of Friends among the marketing material, there's now also your account and those people who will never join like that's I think more of the place yeah it is important and I think it's even 
more important. Like I think, you know, if there's anything we can learn from like COVID, <laughs> it's that yeah. nothing really works except inoculating. And I don't know, I see that that is your role here. Yeah, I I agree. I also I I'm happy when I hear from like ex members of like people who were followers of Teal or the fellowship that are like, thanks for making me feel less crazy because it's mm. this thing mm -hmm. that I can't explain. Mm. Yeah. Like I think after the gateway came out, I believe, I mean, this was years ago, I'm probably misquoting, but it, it was like a, a, a woman who was in it and I think was very suicidal or struggling and kind of cut off her family. And she left and tried, was trying to patch things back with her family. But her parents were like, how, how could you just be this different person that I maybe accused them of things? I'm not sure what the full story, but she said she listened to her, listened to it in the car with her mom and they just sat there and listened to the whole thing. And her mom was like, finally understood her. And her experience. Aww. Oh wow, that's great. And I think yeah, leaving a very unique community can be feel very isolating when you're in the out back in the outside world. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, I've spoken to ex members of Nexium about this. I mean, before the vow and stuff came out, you know, it was like, how do you explain this weird thing that you were in and why you like have really weird views and in some ways toxic views? Because even when they're like leaving, you know, they still had like Keith's view on gender and stuff mm. and it's like you know they're trying to kind of de-radicalize a little and just they don't know really what's normal and it, it's like it's hard to explain that to a first date or something and so then once the vow or whatever comes out it comes with its own issues of then it's this large thing that everybody knows and wants to know about but at least like people understand your experience and you don't have to like go through the emotional labor right explaining that to them. you you just be like listen to the gateway or listen to the rel revelation then we can That's start my... on a different footing with this conversation yeah yeah. Yeah. Last question about this, at least for me. There seems like there's this undercurrent in Revelations of um, a mental health issue with Robert. So, I mean, we can't diagnose him, but there's a lot of stuff here that reminds me of schizophrenia uh, or things like it. Uh, and there are a lot of symptoms around psychosis that can mean many, many different things are going on with you. So I just can't know. But we are talking about stuff like seeing messages in billboards, seeing personal messages to him from God in license plates, a little bit of like clanging and rhyming and wordplay that just suggests there's something up <laughs> with this yeah. guy's brain. And as you were navigating that and you're recognizing he's done these really awful things, but he's also probably a sick guy. What's kind of going through your head about how to balance those those two sensitivities? Yeah. I mean, yeah, he look, I don't I don't know if he has some access to higher consciousness or is enlightened in some way. Uh, what I know is that he has I mean, you listen to him now and I, I understand I follow the teachings a little, but mm -hmm. it's this kind of radical numerology. He finds signs and paintings and it's it's kind of like a beautiful mind type connecting mm. all the dots and you know he's like counting penises in paintings or like yeah. <laughs> in like there's a there's so it's like yeah that that's something yeah, i guess you do see with with schizophrenia um i know that he was he grew up in a rural area and maybe had an abusive childhood but then i, I know he was in this he was in a, a, a very abusive cult mm -hmm. in the 60s that was fourth way very similar and it was this alex horn who was this he was this theater actor guy who sort of he taught something similar that they there was called the the theater of all possibilities. And they were all kind of in this passion play. And it was very homophobic. I mean, the, this leader, he uh, was very abusive, made people get in these, like, fight the gay out of each other, basically, beat the Oof. gay out of each other. It was kind of like this fight club. Oh, people God. just beat each other to the bloody pulp. And people would circle around him and call him, like, very derogatory names about, you know, being gay. God. Um, 
and <sighs> he would kick people out for being gay. And allegedly, there's an article from the 70s saying that he forced a man to have sex with his own daughter or ordered this man to have sex with his own daughter. So it was a very fucked up group. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, there are different stories, but apparently Robert was kicked out for being, for having a gay experience or something. And, and Robert has said that he, he just graduated onto the next thing, but he left the group and then he was in this car wreck and got several stitches on his head. And soon after that, he started speaking to the angels. Oh, ah. car accident. Okay. Oh, I missed he, that connection. Okay. I didn't talk about, I didn't want to get too into, in the, in the podcast, like saying like, this is what the angels are. But, right. Speculating but yeah, he, about what's going on here. Yeah. Right. Which I'm yeah. now inviting you to do. Yeah, I know. Now I'm, I'm, I'm freewheeling here. Uh, but yeah, so there was, the, that's, that's how he became this. And then like he started kind of, he found his first student and uh, grew from there. And eventually they bought a compound. Um, but yeah, so there is the history of, it seems of abuse and possible brain damage and his teachings have spiraled where he makes less sense over time. And yeah, with all this stuff, I just tried to present it. You know, I was like, here's, here's him teaching. Like, here's what people have said about when they were in this group with him. You know, this is my reporting. And I tried not to like connect the dots and diagnose or anything. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting though, that it's a car accident because I'm realizing now that that is a through line in some of Ross's and my experiences is a few people. Physical trauma. Yeah. And I think car accidents in particular, which makes sense. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like the fastest thing a human body does is like driving a car. And then if the car stops and you hit something like this is, this is pretty much how brains get damaged that badly. Yeah. You know, without being able to know, it, it does at least seem like a coherent and parsimonious explanation that that you know created or lent to yeah. these these voice experiences yeah, yeah. hey psst, carrie yeah ross what's up step over here um okay yeah jennings doesn't doesn't need to i mean i'm not hiding it from him i just thought he's not even noticing this what kind of investigative reporter is this yeah it's weird it's like he's just frozen there staring at i don't know what is he even looking at i don't know i think he's I don't think he's well. Anyway, well, how are he, you? Great, thanks. Okay, what, the important thing is, I just got a message from yeah. a carrier pigeon. I'm not sure how it got into the apartment, but Whoa. it has a message, and I figured I would unfurl it and share it with you. Okay, yeah. Let's see. Let's unscroll this. Scroll, 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 scroll. Unfurl, furl, furl, furl. Oh, it's a jumbotron. Oh, go figure. All right. Yeah. So apparently, this is for Ren Ortega. Yes, from Kieran. And it says. Happy anniversary, Ren. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me, and I'm so glad we get to share life together. That was a whoopee cushion sound. Specially requested, and Carrie had it. Carrie had it at the ready. (laughs) I said, oh, that's no problem. I have my whoopee cushion fart machine that I got from Golf and Stuff with 200 tickets. So which variety of fart was it that you chose? Thank you for asking. That was juicy. There's also classic. There's power, nervous, ripper, that's it. Oh, and you were ready for such a time as this. Yeah, so I picked Juicy because it seems like the strongest. Oh, yeah, that leaves an impression. Okay, well, (laughs) happy anniversary to both Kieran and Ren. That's fantastic. We're very excited for you. Yay, happy anniversary. Ross, while we're over here, can we just take... 
care of a couple items of business. Yeah, I mean, Jennings still just staring out into space. Jennings is just staring. It's I'm worried for him, but first I want to talk to you about Rothy's, the shoe company. Yes, I think everybody knows I'm a big fan. Rothy's are the perfect shoes for commuting and traveling. Everyone notices them. You know what? I had dinner with my friends Scott and Charles recently. Charles being Charles Solomon, the noted animation historian Mm. and critic. But we got out of the car and Charles looked down at my shoes and said, oh, I like your shoes. And I said, why, thank you. They are Rothy's. And then when we got to the dinner table, I lifted them up, as you shouldn't do at a table, and said, see, look. Mm -hmm. And they're even made out of recycled water bottles. Yeah, you live in like a product placement universe where- people talk like this. Kara can confirm this was a real conversation that happened. He commented on my shoes and I said, great, I'm going to tell you all about Rothy's. I love it. You're like Truman. And you know, Rothy's are the perfect shoes for commuting and traveling. Everyone notices them. You wear them with yoga pants or dress them up for a night out. And Rothy's takes sustainability to the next level. All their products are knit with a thread made from plastic water bottles. They've repurposed around 125 million water bottles so far. Damn. Yeah, Rothy's are really cute. They're really comfortable. And I don't know, they're trying to give a crap at all about the earth, Mm -hmm. which a lot of companies don't even bother to give a tiny, tiny little rat's butt about. But it's not just about sustainability. It's also about style. It's about comfort. It's about washability. You can wash your shoes uh, in the washer like you would anything else. Yeah, they're pretty darn easy. And they're cute. They're cute as hell. I have really cute little femme ones. You have the more unisex style. Oh, you know what? Actually, I have two pairs of Rothy's. What am I thinking? I have this one little flat with a pointy toe and a little sunburst design. Oh, yeah. But then I also have my driving shoes, I think is what they call them. And they're more of like a penny loafer. unisex style they're really cute you know your new shoes are waiting so discover the versatile styles you can wear absolutely anywhere and get twenty dollars off your first purchase at rothys.com slash oh no that's r-o-t-h-y-s dot com slash oh no for twenty dollars off your first order but while we're here this episode this one that jennings frozen for Mm -hmm. it is sponsored in part by Honey. And thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Yes. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites, okay? okay. Walrusteeth.com. And when you check out, the Honey button drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons and it finds you the cheapest ethically sourced walrus teeth on the market. Oftentimes you don't need to click anything. It will pop up out of nowhere because you've installed Honey on your browser or your iPhone. You can do that too. And hey, I could save you money. And uh, this happens to me all the time. Sometimes I've already got a discount code in mind that I'm coming Mm -hmm. to a website with and I'll be like, thank you, honey. I appreciate that you have my back. Uh, It's also fun that I get to call you honey, but I'm going to use this one that I would have. And it's like, yeah, no big deal. That's cool. We're still friends. But I'm stepping out. You're asking me to leave and I will. I've had the most success on buying food online. So when I'm going to buy a meal for pickup, honey's usually, it's on it. Very cool. Nice. I used it recently buying, I believe I was buying a Father's Day gift for Drew. Our doggy and kitty asked for my help because they wanted to buy him some uh, workout shorts. Nice. He wanted new workout shorts. And mm-hmm. I believe Honey saved me a little bit of dough on those, which Golly and Ella were super thankful for because they don't get a lot of allowance. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. It's literally free and it mm-hmm. installs in seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and 
supporting our podcast. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash oh no. That's joinhoney.com slash oh no. All right. I, I don't know. What should we like? Does he have a button? How do we get Jenny? I think I have to push the fart button again and then he comes back. There he is. That worked. Well, this episode, of course, is sponsored in part by Renaissance Winery. And uh, I just want to give them a shout out for all their delicious red and white wine. Yeah. (laughs) But we also wanted to chat with you about The Deep End. Yes. Yeah. So again, we had you on before to talk about The Gateway, an excellent series that you did looking at Teal Swan. I think most of our listeners will recognize that name. Uh, Hopefully you've heard our previous episodes about her. But she is this spiritual leader who is... I'd say best known on YouTube, has many hundreds of videos that she's put out. She talks a lot about pain and suffering and people with extreme trauma and depression. And that seems to be kind of who she markets to. So that's just a little catch up for anybody who maybe isn't familiar. Uh, But there's this new series on Hulu called The Deep End. And she's sort of back in the news and everybody's consciousness. And uh, you had a bit of a hand in that. Can you tell us about your role? Yeah. And it's it's actually it's it's Freeform and Hulu. Oh yeah, yeah. They you know when the when the Gateway came out, I was working Gizmodo at the time. They that's who released it. It's a technology site, so it's kind of a weird location for that. But I was originally interested in how she was sort of building this new brand of spirituality using the tools of the internet, and you know specifically targeting people who you know were depressed and maybe suicidal. Um, but then it sort of evolved into this whole other thing. And so the podcast came out. And there was a lot of interest. A lot of production companies were reaching out Hmm. to Gizmodo to want to develop it. And I was a little nervous because, you know, you had companies that their past work was a little more like sensational, salacious, like gritty. And I I was, you know, and it's like a, it's weird when, you know, the the journalist, if your your story gets optioned or your podcast or something, you, you know, put a year into it and it's like, whose hands do you trust it into? And I, I didn't really have a lot of say because Gizmodo owned the intellectual property and could do whatever with it, whatever they wanted. And that's at that experience is why I left to kind of pursue more freelance to have a little more creative control of the stories that, cause it's, it's, it's weird. Yeah. You create this story and then you unleash it and then it, you don't really know where it goes from there. So it's nice to be as responsible with that as possible. Mm. But um, so yeah, we spoke to a lot of production companies and, and the documentary group was, was very clear, like speaking to them, I knew they, they would, be trauma informed in their approach to this and they have great journalistic sensibilities. And um, yeah, so we made a deal um, to, they were going to develop it in some way, gave them all my notes and and recordings. And I'd, um, we'd also, we actually filmed everything, most of what's in the gateway um, because Gizmodo was interested in, at the time we were owned by Univision and they were starting this new channel fusion and they were trying to develop like, cause it was, Gizmodo, Jezebel, Deadspin, The Onion, AV Club. They owned a All lot of these. part of this family, yeah. Yeah, and they were trying to kind of develop those into shows for Fusion, which is a, now, yeah, failed. Oh, oh, yeah, it was a Gawker site, right? Okay, yeah, Gawker. It used to be Gawker. <laughs> okay. Gawker I mean, this is a whole other oh, media let's get into it. Okay. cultiness. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be Gawker and all, like Gizmodo and all that. And then the Voldemort who funded the Hulk Hogan lawsuit, mm-hmm, who I'm not going to mm-hmm. say his name. Peter Thiel. Um, yeah, he, uh, you know, after that, Univision bought, all of the sites, but like killed off Gawker because it was kind of right. seen as too toxic. And now yeah. Gawker has become its own. Yeah. It was rebought and it's its own thing. But yeah, Univision was trying to, I think, because they started Fusion, which was sort of like, it was, I think it was trying to be like squeaky clean vice. 
you know, like like uh-huh. young millennials, uh-huh. but uh-huh. like real woke and yeah, clean and okay. okay. Huh. So you had a camera crew with you when you were so doing yes, the so they were yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I digress. Uh, yeah, so they they were filming all this and filmed all my interviews, and so that made potential production companies even more excited because they already had footage to go with. Mm. We picked a partner. They this production company used all that footage and, and made a, a really good sizzle that we then pitched around to networks, and then they were. They brought in a director, uh, John Casby, who, you know, I saw his his wow. previous work and he's a magician. I mean, his he's incredible. The, the way he gets access and like the way he films, I mean, it's incredibly cinematic. Hmm. And and then they, they were able to get Teal's agreement to, to participate. I, I initially I reached out to Teal's team and was like, hey, somebody wants to develop this into some sort of TV show documentary project. And did you have a decent relationship with Teal's team? Yeah, were they like, Jennings, we're so excited to hear from you. (laughs) Or like, screw off, buddy. They were not happy to hear Mm. from me. Um, I don't know if they even listened to The Gateway. I know that... Mm. Oh, interesting. Okay. I have a hard time believing they didn't. Interesting. Well, I don't know if Teal did. Okay. Because... I feel like I saw some of her videos and stuff where, because she tried to like not acknowledge it, for, I think, for the most part. I mm. was told that if you post, there's a period on the Teal Tribe, her Facebook group, where if you posted me, Gizmodo, and this is, just somebody told me this, I didn't check it. You or get kicked if you, off. If you post it, well, like the po- it wouldn't, it would automatically delete, or it was like they'd already kind of self-censored. Uh, okay. I don't wouldn't know if that's a proved. setting in Facebook. I was told this, like, I can't confirm it, because now the, that Teal Tribe is no longer up or maybe just people were deleting i don't know but so yeah they were not i i don't know if teal listened to it I, but i know she wasn't happy with the reaction i feel like i was i tried to be very neutral and i never i don't think i deceived them in in my approach to it mm-hmm. but i think they didn't like it because they said they had to, a lot of events were canceled after it oh wow mm-hmm. so yeah they weren't super they weren't like hey buddy welcome back <laughs> what's but our next were, project yeah i think they were yeah they were not happy i was like but look i don't know somebody wants to make a tv show about teal I, you know here they Up are to you. uh which I think they were happy about that. And they're like, all right, we'll talk to them is my recollection. Okay. So using using the footage shot from your visit as sort of a proof of concept. Yes. So that was all they used that. They added something used as a proof of concept but, to pitch it out. They got But it. has any of that released to the public? Is that available in any form? No. Okay. No. Uh, I'm gonna start a new hashtag. Hashtag release the footage. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no, Ross, I have such bad news for you. What? That is already a hashtag. Oh, probably about something completely unrelated. No, and this is what's going to make it so confusing. It is about okay. something related. So so since the deep end came out, uh, Teal has started a campaign, hashtag release the footage. Uh, oh, be- no. I know. Because, That's a horrible coincidence. <laughs> because she feels that the deep end uh, manipulatively edited the footage that they took with her over a number of years yeah. which you oh. weren't you were <laughs> sorry okay we must be shooting oh, far man. ahead i'm sorry it's okay <laughs> but jennings you weren't also, even there for like any of this footage so you kind of you yeah. have no idea yeah also inconveniently it, it's a hashtag that is often used with uh when referring to footage of police shooting people oh of course yeah of course it is yeah i'm sure teal thoroughly researched this yeah so it's 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 definitely it's it's clogging uh that hashtag oh, and no. now it's being used right. for like January 6th uh, footage and stuff. Oh, it, it, okay. I mean, it, it, many causes, but I think historically it is largely used for uh, police shootings. But uh, yeah, that's that. That is a, there's nothing good that cannot be ruined. That is a campaign uh, that I see that she has started. But yeah, I like I said, I yeah, I had nothing to do with the the filming or the editing. I handed over all my notes and. To God be with you. Uh, I, I every once in a while I would talk to the production team and kind of give them my okay advice on things or like introduce them to to people I'd interviewed because that was yeah that was sort of the agreement like 
help out as I can. But you, but you weren't in the editing bay. You weren't there for the shoot. You were just sort of in, a, in an advisory position. Yeah, as far as I know, John and his team just basically embedded in Teal's community for three years and wow. filmed a lot. Yeah, again, maintained incredible access to really let them in. And uh, yeah, they, they were able to kind of make it something entirely their own that they didn't need. And I think, yeah, when you have that kind of access, you maybe don't need or don't want like to have the sort of talking head approach where mm -hmm. journalists are giving you their perspective or insight sure it's so it's, it's a very verite you're kind of like a fly on the wall in, in teal's world and i again i'm very impressed that he was able to to do that for three years and yeah honestly stay sane that's huge well one thing i'd like to clarify is what when you visited her she had an operation was it in central america uh yeah she was mostly based in utah i think she lived in utah always has but she had recently bought the philia center uh in costa rica that, uh, yeah, that's where she would do these retreats. Um, and that's where I went out to see her retreat for the first, the, my first interview. And then the second interview met her in Utah. Um, because there were two main interviews that I had and then also just like talking to her throughout. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know the current status of. If that still exists. The Philia Center, because that wasn't in, I mean, I, I've, my knowledge of the deep end is I, I saw it with everybody else mm -hmm. when it was up on Hulu. But uh, yeah, I didn't see Philly Center in, in yeah, any Yeah, because I was watching it thinking in the back of my mind, oh, this is in Costa Rica. And then every indication I got was of Utah. And as far yeah. as I can tell, it was all filmed in Utah. Right. Also, though, it most of it was filmed at the pandemic, like peak pandemic, mm. which I think didn't really affect Teal because I don't think she's super concerned about covid Okay. I, I mean, it seems like, yeah, she's just not really into vaccines or all that or masks. So I think it didn't f affect the filming because there's no masks and it. it feels like it was filmed mm. before or after. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Goodness. Good point. But yeah. so I think I think maybe that made the planning a retreat in Costa Rica a little more difficult. OK, I guess, because yeah, I was surprised that there's nothing about that in, in there. Now, remind me, did she grow up Mormon? Speaking of Utah, she grew up in a very Mormon community, was not Mormon. Okay. Um, I think her parents were kind of hippie ish. But she she has said that yeah, being growing up in a very in a very Mormon community really shaped her upbringing. Well, Understandable. And yeah. and now like uh, there's kind of the ex Mormon community has now sort of taken her in, and it's like a fascinating because she's of that world. She brings in a lot of ex Mormons. Oh. Um, there's the wow. Mormon Stories podcast. Uh, John yeah. Dellen is. I mean, mm -hmm. he, I think he does. He he's sort of taken on Teal as one of his beats now. Mm. He had Jared, who was Teal's. I I heard he was her an ex, but he may have been. It may have just been more of a follower. I'm not. But yeah, yeah. I was, this I, this may come up because he was featured in the Deep End. Uh, but then Teal has response videos that we'll talk about uh, in which she said, well, he was actually a disgruntled ex-boyfriend and yeah, they didn't say Yeah, that. I don't know. I mean, I, I yeah, I don't know. I didn't I never spoke to Jared. I mean, the, with the stuff like that, it's like, you know, they're, they're men who Robert may say are were his his romantic partners. And now they would not, you mm -hmm. know, they would not say that. Yeah. They're like, no, I was a follower. So I don't know. I, I never met him. I think at the time he when I was doing the gateway, he was not really in a place to talk. Teal alludes in the series to 12 or 13 relationships she's had, at least in the time, you know, that Blake has been with her following their relationship. Yeah. And I think she's onto her fifth marriage. So, you know, it just doesn't give me the sense that Jared was with her for long, if at all, in a relationship capacity. Yeah. Yeah. I know he was kind of in her inner circle. But I, yeah, with, yeah, with the gateway, I didn't really want my interest wasn't in the inner circle and her relationships and like how she maybe like uses sex or whatever. Like I, I didn't, I was looking into something totally different. And yeah. a lot of that was, I mean, there's so within the like 
the truth tribe, I think, is what the, the community who, because there's the teal tribe and then the truth tribe are the people who've left or are kind mm. of trying to expose her. I think within the truth tribe community, there's so much focus on that kind of interpersonal drama. And I definitely, like, just being around it was really fascinating, like seeing how teal sort of puts people in different positions and, and like what I, I saw with her in her community. But and I was like, I think a documentary crew would have like, would just be so fascinated by being able to show these dynamics. But yeah. as a podcast, like I was like that, there's just so much drama and soap opera-ness there that I, I didn't go into it. So that's why yeah, a lot of like her relationship stuff uh, wasn't a focus of mine and I can't really speak to it. But Jared was Mormon. Is that the point? <laughs> Thank you for keeping me on. <laughs> no, no, no. Jared was yeah, former Mormon who went into her group. And uh, yeah, so John John Dallin of Mormon Stories, he interviewed Jared. And then he recently, last week, uh, interviewed somebody who was childhood friends with Teal, who made some fascinating, like added some interesting context and mm. um, kind of filled in some gaps and stuff about Teal's childhood. Okay. Um, yeah. I haven't listened to the whole thing. I, I just started. It's like a few hours. <laughs> like, Inter- okay. I think like three hours. Definitely but it's, uh, yeah, it's really, down. I mean, because she talks about like basically the like early formation of Teal into a spiritual teacher and how like in her her stories of, of the satanic abuse and all that, um, yeah. Like, yeah. she really was there for the catalyst of all that. Oh, um, okay. And says like she makes some allegations about Teal trying to push her to believe these things about herself, yeah. which is similar to one of the interviews I did in the gateway of somebody who yeah. said that, you know, Tori, yeah. Teal told, yeah, Tori told her that, that, yeah, she was in the same satanic cult as, as Teal. And Tori was like, I, I was not, I don't remember that. And she was like, you need to go to Barbara Snow. Yeah. And Tori went to Barbara Snow and Barbara Snow was like, yeah, you were in a satanic cult. Uh, they gave you ketamine. I feel like Barbara Snow is a real linchpin in the story. And she yeah. was Sounds a, like mm-hmm. a quote unquote therapist uh, heavily involved in the satanic panic of the right. 80s and early 90s. Yeah, I mean, and by quote unquote, like she was a licensed therapist. And yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, um, my quote unquote just means I don't value her as a therapist. Yeah, but yeah fair, fair. But yeah, yeah, it's this is, you know, I've been writing a book about the trauma industry and there is. Like the regulation of therapists in America is like abysmal. <laughs> and so it's not shocking that this happened. And it, it makes sense to me that it would happen in Utah, even if she's not Mormon, because there was something called the Pace Memo, where the Latter-day Saints Church released this memo saying a lot of our members are saying they were in satanic abuse rituals and we've looked into it. And the the conclusion of the report is basically, we could not verify an iota of this, but so many people have said it that mm. we just feel it must be true. That is the conclu- oh, wow. the official conclusion of the report. So yeah. like, I take a totally different conclusion from that data, but, yeah. um, but it was powerful and it made a lot of people say, okay, then this is real. All those people can't be lying because yeah. people assume that uh, those are the options, lying or telling the truth. Where there's and, smoke, there must be fire. Right, when there's really yeah. a third option, which is being mistaken or a cultural story, taking control of your memory. These things happen all the time. Yeah. So so yeah, it doesn't shock me that Teal would come out of, of that environment. And I, I feel like there's an, an overall connection here, what we're talking about, like Robert with his earlier group and kind of the, the suffering that he endured there, how these traumas perpetuate themselves, you know, one begets another, which is, I think, all the more reason for us to focus on these groups, because any one of the people that are involved in one of these groups can later on become the founder of another group. Well, and, yeah, there are people who left the fellowship who started their own exploitative Oh, it's no. already started. Okay. Um, I mean, he, yeah. And, Did they name it better? Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, I think there's something called it's spirals in the name. Okay, yeah. Hmm. Oh, but great. Okay, cool. That's, All right. that's catchier. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's and in Teal's fourth husband, Alay, who was in the Fellowship of Friends and then joined Teal's group, he then, like after their divorce, so I think he helped her either buy or start Philia. And then I was there when mm. they were kind of, she was sort of pushing him out in, in a similar way that I saw like with Blake and um, The Deep End. And we keep referring to Blake. I, I feel like we need a little bit of context sure, for sure. anybody who hasn't watched The Deep End yet. Um, so Blake was, it, for a very brief time, influential in her early life. They were in a relationship. He helped her transition kind of into her new spiritual self. And then he stuck around as her acolyte and kind of right-hand man for 18 years. I think so. Uh, so he's a very big player in this drama, and the documentary just happened to be shot at this really... Spoiler! Yeah, sorry. This really crucial transitional moment in their relationship. Yeah. Yeah, he leaves. Yeah. He leaves. That's, Here, I, was, just, I was trying to avoid the spoiler. <laughs> but yeah, Jennings, were you shocked to see that? Did you have any idea? No, I I was not. Well, oh, I, I didn't know that, that he left because he announced... On oh, the Teal Tribe, right? Of course. Yeah, I found okay. out as as Long everybody before else. This came yeah. out. And then yeah. people messaged me. They're like, "Oh my god, did you know?" Because Blake was, I mean, he was kind of like the Ross to her Rachel. You know, everybody yeah. I think was kind of rooting <laughs> for him. You know, they were early, they were dated in the beginning, and then yeah. Ron, oh, and, and, and right. Teal. So I think people, you know, he's kind of this kind of affable, dorky. I mean, I I found him very endearing, and he was one, my main one of my main him and Mateus, who's Teal's like operation manager. Those they were kind of my two main point people when I was reporting and fact checking. Yeah, he um, posted that. I'm I'm looking on the Facebook page. He posted that September twentieth, two thousand twenty one. So yeah. people knew he'd left, but he was still a vague booking. Yeah. Uh, about his reasons. I mean, he talked a little bit about new marriage and wanting to go try new things. Yeah. But yeah, this documentary really shows us. Yeah. I mean, it was a big thing because he, some people think he's like her Svengali. I don't, I don't think that. I mean, I don't mm. think he's like, um, you know, like in, in Rajneesh. Feeding uh, her, with, her, uh, her dialogue. Yeah. But he, you know, he filmed, he, he did the music. I mean, he, he built, helped build Teal. I mean, I don't want to take anything from her. Cause like. He, he shot her ass Teal videos every week yeah. for 18 years or what, yeah. you know, however many years it was. Yeah. And I, I don't want to give him any undue credit. I mean, I think what Teal has done is objectively remarkable. I mean, you know, building yeah. this empire and, yep. you know, what she's done with that influences another story. But she's it's, it's very impressive that a woman in a, you know, a male dominated spiritual field could, you know, yeah. accomplish all this. But but Blake was by her side, all of it and filmed. And I mean, he was a big, big, big part of that. And so yeah. I think, tr- you know, true followers like really that was kind of that was a big deal. And so I, I, watching it, watching the deep end, it was interesting to see that they captured that mm-hmm. sort of fallout. So there's four episodes of the deep end. They're all out now. And uh, Teal Swan herself started posting response videos where at first she said, OK, well, I like this and this. And, you know, they got this right and the footage is beautiful. But, OK, this is a little manipulated and, and I don't feel that this was fairly represented. And then with each subsequent episode, things got a little darker in the representation of Teal and her teachings. And then in Teal's response to them, to the point where Teal is now asserting that pretty much everything you see on screen is fabricated to make her look bad. Yeah. And again, I, I can't speak to all that. I yeah, I've I've watched the videos she posted kind of passively, and and you know, I mm-hmm. my knowledge of the production of filming of the Deep End is about as extensive as is Ours. y'all's, and that I I watched <laughs> mm-hmm. it as it came out, and uh, yeah, I was like, again, I was like, this is this is beautiful. It's fascinating. It's it's incredibly shot. I mean, it was a different era of Teal's empire. I think you know, mm-hmm. I it was more she was more YouTube a YouTuber when I was there, and now she's kind of. 
uh, transcended into something else, I think, during COVID especially. And I mean, she's huge on TikTok. So they captured a, a totally different era. So I a lot of it, I was like, I, I, I can't. No, I just know she's making, yeah, she's she's been critical of it. And it's different. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because with The Gateway, I think her response was to not encourage people to listen to it. I mean, it it mm-hmm. came up like people would ask her during she would do live streams and people would, like ask what you what do you think of it and that's when she would say you know we're not happy I've lost events from this but she didn't do like a point by point right response. and I think this one was just too big to to ignore, to ignore. yeah and the fact that she clearly participated in it for for three years right and she she said that she thought one of her biggest mistakes was not engaging her detractors and then I think right. they immediately played some audio of <laughs> your voice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was, there's a little bit of me in, in it when they... Um... Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. I mean, it's... Look, I guess it's a little bit of drama added to the whole story. You know, now it's kind of unfolding in, in real time. It's it's cool to watch, like, some of my... Without having to be in the middle of it like you are, <laughs> it's cool to watch some of my interests collide like this because we've got sort of journalistic ethics and spiritual groups and editing and like all of these um, these things bumping up against each other. And if what she's saying is true, if she was sort of Frankenstein edited, I totally object to that. But we don't know if that's true. Right. And there is a problem with just like what are the norms of that format? And mm. the norms of a streaming docuseries are different from the norms of like written journalism or even podcasting, where like if we if we took this interview and spliced and diced you and put you all over the place, like that would be totally objectionable even by the standards of a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the norms of a streaming doc are somewhat different just because of the norms of television. So it's going to be really interesting to see this play out and and sort of whether they release the footage or or part of the footage or <laughs> I, I think what I'd if if someone's listening from the deep end, here's what I'd do. I would reach out to her and say, like, well, tell us one scene you think we really got wrong. And we'll oh, release yeah. we'll release that yeah. half hour. Cause like no one's gonna release three years of footage, girl. Like, where are they yeah, gonna that, dump this? I mean, that's yeah. that's honestly Terabytes. kind of the brilliance of it. Because it's like how like how would you even do that? Yeah. And and yet if they don't respond, it's like, well, yeah. Corner, you know? So yeah, reach out to Teal, ask her for the but most that, that objectionable like thing. Good, that seems like I a like good that. happy medium. And we're all commenting as viewers of the series. <laughs> I yeah, I again yeah. yes, I I am not I am not uh enlightened on any of this or where. But, but that's interesting. It's like you're listed as yeah. an executive producer. So like that also tells us something about the the machinations of a streaming doc, right? How executive are you, Jennings Brown? <laughs> I am development executive producer. <laughs> okay, I okay, fair enough. Help with the development. You know, I, I I put in motion. I gave all the things. I helped them pitch it. Yeah. Yeah. And and honestly, it's like after a year in that world, I was like, I'm gonna move on to a, a different focus. Yeah. Like I said, after after Revelations, I was like, I gotta I gotta tune out. Yeah. For, you know, I, was, I gotta check out of this world. Yeah, you're making it sound as if diving into one deep topic after another is <laughs> physically and mentally exhausting. Can't yeah, really, I should. Um, really. huh. Well, fortunately, I'm working on it. Well, never mind. I'm working on something a little fluffier. Oh, now, exciting! But I also can't speak oh, about. I want to hear about yeah, it. Yeah, that's a little better for my mental health. Okay. Um, and a lot of other dark things. I yeah. I'm, but I'm sure. trying to balance it out more. This is why it's always fun to talk to you because uh, we can relate on some yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. After the gateway, I was like, I don't, I, I can't dive back in. And Teal didn't want me around, obviously. Yeah. So yeah, I I was happy to sort of hand it off. And let somebody else take the reins for a bit, and, and let me come up for air, and they can dive back in. Well, so. to their to their credit, it would have been so dang easy 
to not involve you. This is a fear of mine is like, Um. I'll do all of the legwork. I'll put it out and someone will be like, oh, Rhythmia, that's interesting. Bye. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an easy thing to do. Yeah, there was a uh, there was a Vice show. True Believers, I think, where they look into a spiritual group Mm. every episode. Mm. It was like an hour long on Teal. And it was very similar to The Gateway. Just like kind of the the arc, the discoveries, Mm. it goes in the satanic panic. Mm. I mean, it was was much more similar to The Gateway than The Deep End. I mean, The Deep Mm. End, again, it's its own thing. It's more focused on like her interpersonal, her inner circle, whether or not that's a cult or whatever. I mean, The Gateway, it's like more goes into the memory stuff and the satanic panic. Uh, Maybe they're totally, they're different. They're totally different things. And I think they're good companion pieces. But but the the vibe true believers episode they reached out to me i mean this is i've heard this is kind of a classic vice thing yeah they, they reached out and they were like hey love the gatekeepers or the gateway or they i think they <laughs> can you introduce us to these people you interviewed mm. and i was like no nah, i'm good i you know because I, I, I had an agreement with with the other thing so i i didn't I, a few people reached out to participate and didn't really go with it but um it was interesting because yeah once the that episode came out it's very similar mm-hmm. so yeah they you don't i mean teal is just choosing public i mean anybody can do a story and kind of use the sort of thesis that you yeah i appreciated that and i think it was because it was easier to i mean my own speculation is like easier to sell a thing when there's yeah a podcast yeah. that you know you can listen to and has a certain amount of viewers and like people can see there's a beginning middle and end so it's easier to pitch that so i think it was worth partnering with me in the right. development stage yeah and they didn't know if they were going to get teal's agreement or if they'd want to do it more on like me continuing the investigation or i mean it could have gone any any way so i appreciate that they they came to me first and they're like you did this thing and we want to build on that but i am also very happy that i could step back and let them make it and i've learned a lot about yeah um yeah about documentaries and stuff and what to do what not to do so it was it was a it was a good experience but um i'm glad that this time that i'm not really the focus of of all of the the drama was it was it stressful though to have your name on it and not know how it would turn out yeah yeah i guess so i mean i guess any journalist or writer or whatever who their story gets optioned goes through this i mean mm-hmm. you know like i think not to compare myself to this but it's just like a, a famous example of like i think stephen king absolutely hated that oh, um right the shining the shining yeah you know, the was film. totally different and they're both well respected on their own and their right? own right mm-hmm. but like they're completely different things and those two creatives butthead and don't agree i'm not comparing myself to that but that's like a famous thing of you know it's like once you make a thing and then somebody options it and they can do whatever yeah. the hell they want with it yeah. Um. Yeah. So it is a little nerve wracking, you know. Like I'm loosely attached in some spiritual way, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know what it was going to be. Yeah, and you um, don't know if it'll accidentally like glamorize her or something. I'm sure. Sure. That. Was yeah, part I of was concerned. Yeah, I. It could have been. It could have been a total propaganda for her. I mean, mm-hmm. it could have been. I mean, I, I. There were times where I thought it might. It could go that way. That it would be like really celebrating what she's done and uh i'm glad it it struck a little bit of a balance like it you know in the beginning Mm -hmm. it's 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 more like okay this is something i could get into i mean i think like the vow did that with nexium because it's it's good to show why people get into something and not just like totally demonize it because i think that does a disservice to survivors be like oh that can never happen to me like how dumb are you to get duped by that so i yeah i like that it it shows that it's a little more even-handed in the beginning and then 
goes a different direction from there. We uh, we don't have time to you know fully break apart all the episodes, but th- there's so many themes covered, and I'm, I'm wondering if any of these in particular just kind of stand out to you because we do cover a bit of her origin story and the you know allegations of the sexual abuse and satanic abuse, but also you've got this independent investigator who Teal hires, like her manager hires to look into her. That was fascinating. Molly, yeah. And then you also have the element of Juliana. That's Blake's new girlfriend, who's part of the the tribe she's actually been trained in the completion process and she comes over from germany to live with blake they get married teal's there for it then blake leaves um so there's all these different threads going on there's the completion process itself there's a new thing i hadn't heard of the water breath just from those few threads what kind of stood out to you um again i think it was it was fascinating to see the interpersonal stuff like i seeing it philia just it was just exhausting to you know, like we were waiting for breakfast one morning and um, we waited like an hour. And because I guess Teal and her then husband were going through something and doing some sort of shadow work or something. And they came down and we finally ate. Everybody was starving. And then Teal made everybody go around and like say stuff that why LA wasn't in line with them or something like that. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. You know, I laugh because it just sounds so Teal. This is like Mean Girls, but with a spiritual leader. Yeah. Like he had been, they were building a sweat lodge. They had a shaman come in to build sure. a sweat lodge on and well, affiliate center, you. and he was focused on that the whole time. And my my recollection, which is what could go wrong? That, well, it was that she was then like, you spent the whole week working on that sweat lodge that you were so excited about. Like I think she like I don't know. She told him to do it, and then was like, why you, you didn't engage with everybody? You're so focused on the sweat lodge, and had everybody go around and criticize. They're like, and all these men are like, yeah, you you have all this access to teal, and yet you're off building a sweat lodge. And he had to sort of defend himself. And then soon after that, he. Teal announced they were getting divorced. Okay. And then he went up, he changed his name and started his own spiritual group. Cool. Speaking of perpetuating the this cycle. This is why we'll never but, run out of subjects for the podcast. Yeah, the, the cult industrial complex. Yeah. <laughs> so they they so I saw that and I was like, I don't know how to and I didn't want to speculate about a marriage and all that. That's not my place. But that's right. when I was like, this is not my place, but I think this would be fascinating to see because I've never seen anything like it. It's exhausting and fascinating. You can't turn away. And so I'm glad that it was it was cool for me to see that. I mean, it was interesting. It's not with what Juliana I would do. and the people around them being yeah, incited to say, "What do you think Juliana's thinking about you, Teal?" That's negative. Yeah, yeah, that Ugh. was very. I got, I had a flashback to seeing that happen to Alay. Wow. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was cool to see and have other people because it's kind of been this little thing that I have like these anecdotes about this weird experience that didn't have a place in the gateway. So yeah, that 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 stood out to me. Fascinating. Because yeah, watching her and and, and having. I mean, there is kind of the soap opera in- intrigue behind it, like seeing her pit people against each other and how she does it. And there's like a sense of you have to show your loyalty. And it's, you know, seeing Blake torn between loyalty to his fiance wife or Teal. I mean, it there is certainly some intrigue there. Mm. Well, uh, taking these projects as a whole, is there a central message of your work? Oh, boy. I've never thought about that. No, I just want I want transparency in this stuff. I mean, I want I'm just trying to lift the veil a little so that people can understand what they're getting into. Some of that inoculation, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it started. I'd like that journalism is a, a way to it's a license to ask anybody anything. I'm always a seeker. I've always been interested. I like I like going into these strange worlds and taking an audience with me. I mean, that's kind of how it starts mm-hmm. with Teal. Is like this is this fascinating world with the revelation with the Fellowship Friends. I. I was like, what is this Shangri-La? I want to see it. And then I can't just, I keep like digging deeper and, and finding the um, the dirty underbelly, which I'm maybe realizing there's always a dirty underbelly to anything. Hmm. 
So yeah, I don't know. Um, my work is come along, see what we find out, much like much like yours, I guess. And hopefully, I help some people along the way and encourage people to encourage these groups to have more transparency or some sort of regulation that's going to prevent them from harming people. Fantastic. Well, I'd say it's important work, and I wish you all the best in it so we can check in with you again to, to hear about what you're yeah. up to. I will happily... I'm, I'm trying to make it to seven. Isn't okay. that the SNL number? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I like <laughs> it. You've, you've hosted seven times, then you're like Tom Hanks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So any any time. Hopefully the next projects will be a little a little lighter and more fun, and I'll feel less weird making jokes about <laughs> the things then. And well, everybody should listen to Revelations on Spotify. But how else should they follow you and see and hear your work? Oh yeah, like I said, if you want to reach out for to share something weird or just follow along, like I said, uh, T Jennings Brown on Instagram or Facebook, and then I'll kind of post some of my reporting and, and stuff there. Yeah, that's, I guess, the best landing page because I'm no, I'm, I'm freelance now, so I'm no longer publishing anything regularly on a site. Cool. Yeah, which also yeah. means you're a free agent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are these like devil hands carry? Yeah, I'm like giving, a... I'm giving the like double rock on symbol. Rock on. <laughs> Hang yeah. loose. Nice. Uh, well, thank you, Jennings. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, and thanks, thank you. Thanks for giving us an insight into two of these really uh, interesting investigations. My pleasure. Yeah, it's always really nice to talk to Jennings. He's real fun. Yeah, we could have talked to Jennings a lot longer, but he had another interview to go to. Typical. So that's it for this episode. Over the weekend, we did our live ketchup and mustard eating as part Ooh. of our Max Fun fundraising. And thank you again to everybody who supported us and got us there. I vomited. Yeah, Carrie threw up. I, I missed that golden moment. I should uh, replay it on the video, which I should say I will post to our YouTube channel. The The Grey Poupon beat me. It was 16 ounces. I could not get all the way through it. I ate half of it. And my urine still smells like Dijon mustard a day afterward. Gross. Oh, it's disgusting. Um, I ate about 17 ounces of ketchup. I like ketchup. So we felt that this was kind of even. Ross gets eight ounces of something he hates. Mm -hmm. And I get way too much of something I like. And it was painful. But I yeah. actually expected it to be longer lasting oh. and worse. Okay. Once I had thrown up the one time, a couple hours passed and I was pretty okay. I feel like I was close to throwing up and if I'd been more aggressive about it, I would have. And I had a very mm -hmm. upset stomach later. Though, as I mentioned at the beginning of it, Carrie and I originally were going to record together. And uh -huh. then I had just been warned that morning by one of my friends that I had seen the previous Wednesday night that she had gotten COVID and I wasn't feeling so hot. So I threw this out and Carrie's like, okay, let's do this from our respective homes. And you took an at-home COVID test and yeah. it came up negative. Yeah. But I, I still said, well, you know, you can, you can get false negatives. Let's, let's wait. So then afterward, I felt awful. My stomach hurt, but also like I was headachy. And uh, really fatigued. And then Kara, my wife, she took a test and got positive. And so ever since uh -oh. then, it, it's been pretty clear that uh, we have COVID. I'm, it's a sure thing. So anyways, fam. bullet dodged. Good thing you stayed home. I feel better about that. Not so for my friend Charles. I hope he's okay. Because he, oh, he right. came over. Charles during, came over during that. I know. And we hung out and watched a movie afterwards. So Oh, gosh. I know. I'm, I'm really worried about Charles now. Oh, yeah. He's vaxxed, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. So I'll be commencing regular testing. So 
Ross, you're recording this with COVID. It's yeah. been like two, three years of waiting for this moment when one of us finally contracts COVID. It was going to happen. It's it was you. Me. It's now. What's it like? I can't remember. Did we make a prediction about that? I know we did, but I haven't looked it up. Should we look it up? Yeah, at least I feel somewhat better. There was just the news that Fauci got it. So I held out as long as Anthony Fauci. <laughs> at first, it was hard to separate. Like, how much of this is just me being queasy from having eaten eight ounces of disgusting mustard? and how much of it is just me not feeling well. Certainly, I already had the headache. And my temperature got up to 99.6. And then later on that night, Saturday night, it went back down to uh, 98.2 and it hasn't gone back up. So the fever Mm. broke pretty quickly. Now I just have a cough. That's uh, annoying, but I'm doing all right. Poor Maidru has the worst symptoms of anybody. Chills and a little bit of like flavor loss and really bad headache. So he's been miserable. That sucks. Yeah. Well, gosh, I mean, what a moment to be thankful for vaccines that this thing that we've all been running from for years, like finally catches Ross Blotcher and makes him like a little fatigued. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's amazing. You're right. That is the real story here because I'm sure all of us would be far worse off. I'm I'm certain I would be without that protection so i'm hugely oh my god hugely grateful for that absolutely yeah in two ways like the variants that hit you might have been worse Mm -hmm. and you individually Mm -hmm. not being protected yeah no a huge success story but sorry you gotta got the sniffles no thanks okay i found the only mention of covid in any of our 2022 predictions it was a carry predicts and it says two boosters for covid19 variants are released to the public but that's it oh interesting okay Well, we've still got half the year for that to happen. Yeah, it doesn't look like any of the psychics made any COVID predictions. That's kind of interesting. Huh, I think that would be topical. Yeah, huh. Maybe after 2021, everyone was like, eh, fuck it, we don't know what's happening. Uh, But uh, thank you, everybody. That's it for the show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. This episode was edited by Ross Blotcher. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. You can support this and all our investigations by going to MaximumFun.org forward slash join. Oh, we also forgot to mention that the banjo song was chosen and Carrie will be learning to play. We stand tall! We stand tall. Yeah, all right. I'm excited. (laughs) It's going to sound so repetitive, (laughs) but I'll do it. I'll do it. And remember... Also, one anecdote that I wanted to put in. There was one... She worked in the main office of the Fellowship of Friends... She, I met her, and um, the president was like, "Hey, do you want to, you want to interview? Do you want to interview her? Like, do you want to talk to Jennings?" And she was like, Mm-mm. "I listen to Ono Ross and Carrie. <gasps> I know what you, I know what you do. Oh, wow! I know oh. you report on, yeah. Damn, that's we awesome. blocked you. Wait, wait, yeah. that's somebody who worked in the office. She, she's in the Fellowship of Friends, <gasps> and she listens to Ono Ross and Carrie. Yeah, well, huh. reach out to us. We want to <laughs> talk to you. Yeah, it was fascinating because it's like." I never, you know, I told them, they, they all knew I'd done, I report on these things. I mean, when I went into the fellowship, I didn't lie about who I was. So I was like, yeah, it's like, I, I report on these groups. I'm not like especially critical, but I, you know, I'm skeptical and I'm open-minded and I try to find that balance. Yeah. But so I was like, yeah, I, she, but she's like, I've, I've seen, <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar with your work. It does illustrate though, one challenge with this work is like, you try to be objective, but as long as you come up to any conclusion, someone sort of sees you as a traitor. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. right, right. Yeah. Hey, it's John Moe. Join me on Depression Mode for conversations on how mental health shapes our life. This week, David Sedaris with stories of his late father that he's finally willing to tell. I think there's a difference 
between, you know, a good person and a good character. Like he was a good character, my boyfriend here. And my father was another one of those people. He was a really good character, but he, he, he wasn't a good person. Depression Mode with John Moe, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say Bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week for My Brother, My Brother, and Me. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.